before that. Are you a fan of things that go bump in the night? Chills up your spine, paralyzed by fright. Thrilled by horror at the center of a chat. Then welcome to the Nerds from the Crypt podcast. Welcome back, guys, and thank you for joining us here on the Nerds from the Crypt podcast. And today we have another great interview for all you horror fiends. Joining Jason and I into the crypt today is Stephen Farrows, an accomplished writer, director, and actor. And he has a new project called Stoker and Wells. And um, we want to go ahead and thank Stephen for being here with us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Let's get to know you a little bit more before we go into, into your current project. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your past? I can, and, and I really appreciate it. This probably is the first time I've been referred to uh, in, in a laundry list of, of roles I've assumed as an actor. You know, I, my mother will be very proud because I, I did win Best Actor in both junior high and in high school. But since then, I, you know, I've kept my, my acting chops pretty under wraps. Uh, I did play Joanna Lumley's Driver in the Cat's Meow film I did with Kirsten Dunst uh, that I wrote. Peter Bogdanovich directed. That was sort of my writer cameo. But hey, look, if if if, if I can get promoted as an, an actor, they make much more money than <laughs> writers do. So fantastic, I'm in. Um, so I uh, I'm from New York, born in Brooklyn, raised on uh, middle class suburbia, Long Island. I went to NYU, studied film. Was always writing, writing little short stories when I was a kid. Wrote uh, backyard plays. Um, drafted my my poor, unsuspecting, unassuming friends. My very my my first uh, dramatic triumph was in third grade. I mounted a delightful, I don't know, 15 minute production uh, called Murder of Mr. Hyde, which answers the never asked question of whatever happened to Dr. Jekyll's butler. And so <laughs> that was a uh, dollar fifty five in ticket sales and a dollar sixty five in concessions, which taught me a lesson very early that that's where, <laughs> you know, the real money is. Um, so was always doing plays and things. always loved movies. Didn't actually wrap my head around at third grade that people can, that one can make them. But then I got a camera, started shooting. I always uh, uh, went to, I enrolled in one and only uh, one uh, film school. That was NYU. That was as a kid growing up on Long Island, the, the, the Manhattan beckoned. I went. It was a great education. I was always uh, scribbling at the nights. An internship turned into a job. So I was working for a producer on a really cool show in New York when I was right out of school, writing at nights, writing at nights, trying to write the next spec script. And then uh, one hit and uh, got, got optioned. I came out here, thought, wow, that's it. I'm two years out of college, I've made it. And then, then the, they, they have all the financing and it's going to get made. And uh, about 12 years later, the movie got made. So uh, with a, through, uh, about nine producers later. So um, but it was better for the journey. The, 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 the group of people, the quality of how the, the script got developed was just a better circumstance. So as much as I may have shed tears over those 12 years, it was it was all worth the journey. So I've been a we could talk about any facet uh, before being a graphic novel author. I I am a I've had films produced. I've directed them. Uh, obviously written them. I've uh, sold uh, one-hour pilots to uh, NBC, to MTV. I wrote on a series for The Lot, I mean, called The Lot for AMC that got nominated for an Emmy. I've uh, got two plays published at Samuel French. So I just love telling stories. 
whether it's film, TV, or theater, and now uh, graphic novels, which is so freaking exciting. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, but that's sort of how I uh, landed uh, in front of you, gentlemen. So, uh, you, like you said, you, you did a uh, movie. You uh, what wrote the screenplay for Cat's Meow, right? The Cat's Meow? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I was um, actually looking up, you know, what you've done before, because I did see that you had done some movies and written some screenplays. And I did I had never heard of the story behind a Cat's Meow or, or the, you know, the um, I think the trailer says a based on a true story or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. The, whisper, the whisper told most often. Yes. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I found myself looking that up on not only Wikipedia, on Google. And then I caught myself like two or three hours just looking up videos on on uh, YouTube. And I'm like, wow, this is actually really, really um, interesting. And. The actors you got you know, that was in that movie, um, really, really good actors. Uh, oh, yeah. Dunst. I mean, th- th- just to uh, acquaint your your listeners, it's based on a uh, murder that may or may not have happened uh, on board William Randolph Hearst's yacht in 1924. Um, I was 18 years old taking a class at uh, NYU History of Silent Film. Not to date myself, but this was before they were showing stuff, you know, uh, if they were showing stuff to a big audience, they had to project it on 16 millimeter. And so... We had this cool old, uh, uh, this historian, world-acknowledged historian named William K. Everson, who, by the way, if you're horror fans, he's written, he's passed away now, but he has a great book called Classics of the Horror Film and then more Classics of the Horror Film. They both came out in the 80s, but um, they're really great books. Um, but he was, he's a huge uh, silent film historian. He would screen his own personal prints, and if they were, they were, uh, uh, double perf 16 millimeter which means there's no sound stripe he would never he would he he didn't want to to screen silent movies dry with just the sound of the projector whirring so he would have this little uh record play in the back and he he had his own lps with and he would just be back there like this 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 button down british bald guy like as a dj in the back spinning <laughs> the right music but he was showing uh a short sound film short starring comedian charlie chase and he said, uh, you know, of course, this was uh, this was produced. This was directed by Thomas. Since, of course, uh, you, you all know how he died. And we all these 18 year olds, we all looked at each other. We, we not only didn't know how he died, we never heard of the man. And he said, oh, he was killed on board the Hearst yacht. And it was all hushed up. But you could read about it. It's out there. So a couple <laughs> of years out of NYU, I was like trying to figure out my next of my, you know, I'd, I'd written two spec scripts, got a little attention. Nothing sold had sold yet. And and I said, I want to look into this story. And I just, you know. It was so many, uh, Charlie Chaplin, Marion, uh, Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies, who is a wonderful actress herself, the, the, sort of the the, the, the most powerful uh, gossip, who, a woman who'd become the most powerful gossip columnist, Luella Parsons, was on board before her rise to power. Joanna Lumley, who is sort of the, I mean, I don't know, pick any female author who, who writes lascivious, sexy things, you know, I guess Jacqueline Suzanne from the 70s, it was, was this woman, Eleanor Glynn. Whenever they say someone's got it, that special, un, in, undescribable it, that thing that comes from a book Eleanor Glynn wrote in 1923 called It. And it's now it's always it's become sort of part of the vernacular. No one even knows that it came from her. So I just I researched it. I found out that in that weekend cruise. Uh, that, you know, it was it was a time when we there was only one form of media and it was called the newspapers. And if you controlled Hearst controlled one, sometimes two, in every major city. And so he had the kind of power that people can't have today because media is so spread out. And also people are so much more scrutinized. I mean, he'd gotten the last uh, he'd gotten the last few presidents either elected or 
and deliberately not elected because of his his newspapers um, coverage of them and opinions of them. Um, and so he had power. And so no one. So this cruise set sail, you know, from San Pedro Harbor and uh, which is it's L.A. Like by Long Beach, I believe. And uh, there were no paparazzi there and there were no paparazzi when they came off. And so it's 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 a story. It's a mystery of how this um, pioneer who sort of was on a par with um, D.W. Griffith in terms of rev creating the studio system that we know today where you're prepping one film, shooting another film, and post on another film, all in a sort of business-like, factory-like situation. And it was people like Ince and Griffith were credited with it. Now, Griffith, we know his name more now than Thomas Ince because his films have endured more. And also, he didn't die mysteriously on board William Randolph for his yacht when he was uh, <laughs> 43 years old. So, um, uh, so anyway, so I researched it. I thought, wow. It's one thing to do a, a, write a script where you're sort of running a race cradle to grave through someone's life in two and a half hours. It's another thing to try to – can I get across the essence of these famous people just spending two, uh, two days with them, uh, which actually has a lot in common with uh, Stoker and Wells when we get to it. Um, and what can I communicate to you about who they are by just uh, spending two days with them? And so when I saw who was on board, the crossroads in their lives – who was going up, who was going down, who was in crisis, and they all seemed to be, it just seemed like a perfect um, opportunity to, to write a really interesting piece for some great actors. And as you mentioned, we got we had Kirsten Dunst, who uh, your listeners will know from the first uh, three Spider-Man movies. She was Mary Jane. And um, um, and also um, Eddie Izzard, the the comedian actor who he played Charlie Chaplin, Edward, Edward Herman, who we just lost, who uh, played... Hearst, uh, Jennifer Tilly was in it, uh, Carrie Elway's from The Princess Bride and Saw. He played the Thomas Ince, who was the victim. Um, so it was, yeah, it was an exciting movie. to be, And Peter Bogdanovich directed it, who directed, who's, you know, a legend from the great golden age of 70s cinema. Wrote, directed the last picture show, Paper Moon, What's Up Doc. So I got to be on set the whole time, sit next to him. It was a master class in directing as I uh, learned as much there as I did in, in my years at NYU and I learned plenty at NYU. So it was just a great experience. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to, uh, to look it up. It's not, it, it goes in and out of streaming cycles on Netflix because Lionsgate is, is weird that way, but, <laughs> um, but it's available. It's the discs out there. It streams. If you, if, if you want to see it, I tell you, uh, there is a horror movie that I did more of a ghost story than a, than a R rated horror movie called the undying uh, romantic thriller ghost story that's that is streaming with Amazon Prime um, and it stars Robin Weigert who was Emmy nominated for Deadwood and Wes Studi from you know Heat and Last of the Mohicans and Avatar so it's a it's a it's a cool little uh, ghost story um, about a woman who is uh, got a Civil War era ghost in her house and instead of being afraid of it she basically wants to sleep with it. And what happens there, you know, I leave it to your uh, your loyal listeners to explore. Yeah, I saw the the trailer for that one, too, and mm -hmm. it seemed really interesting. Mm -hmm. And BuzzFeed, I think, was uh, one that had actually uh, reviewed it. And uh, I don't know if that was back then. It, they said that it was on Netflix, so I don't know if it's still on Netflix. But Yeah, it was. It, it was. It's not anymore. Uh, it may it may cycle back on. It, mm -hmm. that, that tends to be you're on for four months, you're off for four months, you're back on. Right now, for sure, it's on Amazon Prime streaming and HD. 
Um, yeah, they called it one of Netflix's. Uh, um, they they did a list of ten Netflix's uh, uh, hidden gems, and we were. It was very cool. Uh, they someone they just BuzzFeed just discovered us. You know, we didn't even solicit them. And then uh, boom, they they wrote this really cool, fun thing about it. Um, so yeah, that, that's another uh, another thing I've done in, in in the time. And I mean, I can I can sort of uh, segue into how I find myself as the author of a graphic novel. Uh, if, if if we're if we're at that point. Yes, because I actually was going to ask you, how did you yeah. uh, tra- how did you go from writing screenplays to uh, doing the graphic novel? Well, you know, you have to be. You have to be the best advocate for you, you. You are the best advocate for your own career. It doesn't matter how successful you get, how many people are working for you. No one is going to care for your career like you're going to care for your career. No one's going to think extra hard about it like you are, because even the most dedicated manager or agent still has another 15 to 40 clients. So you have you. Um, so uh, the cats, I kind of what I did was with Stoker and Wells, I followed. I took a page from my own playbook, which was the cat's meow kept going in and out of options, almost getting made for seven years. And I said, well, I just got to tell this story to somebody, uh, to an audience, maybe in another form, and maybe that will revive interest in the screenplay. So I, I had met a producer I, who said that they would finance it if I turned it into a stage play. So I turned my screenplay into a stage play, got mounted out here in L.A., Got terrific reviews. We got extended. NPS, it did actually do what I wanted it to do. It revitalized interest in the film property. And then, the, as, as I mentioned, the film got made. So cut to more recent years, and I have this screenplay called Stoker and Wells, Order of the Golden Dawn. And it is the first of a trilogy, sort of a big summer tentpole trilogy that meant to bring in what they call four-quadrant audience. That means the kids will like it, the teens will like it, the adults will like it, and the grandparents will like it. And that's sort of like the Sherlock Holmes, Robert Downey Jr. movies. To some extent, the Pirates of the Caribbean. So they're not kids' movies, but they're also not R-rated adult movies. So they kind of will bring in a big, bigger audience. So I thought I had this trilogy of movies in mind. I wrote the first. A lot of people liked it. It's an expensive film to make. Um, uh, a lot of people like that I actually got a job off of it writing something else, but no one was pulling the trigger, very much like the cat's meow. So I said, well, let me turn it into another piece of IP, intellectual property. And it made, it didn't make, I mean, sure, I could turn it into a stage play. It would be an odd stage play. Uh, <laughs> I could have written it as a book. That would be cool. Two authors in a book, and I could write it, uh, write it reminiscent of that sort of Victorian style um, or not. And But there, I know a lot of people in the comic book industry I've I've been on the uh, periphery of it, my you know my whole life, um, and I thought that would be really fun. Why don't I launch it as a graphic novel? And so the first screenplay as as adapted, you know, um, I, I will make it uh, so that'll be book one, and then we'll have book two and book three. And so uh, I reached out to two fellas I've known since seventh grade on Long Island. One of them is Billy Tucci, who any of your comic book fans will know. He created uh, She. SHI the the uh, uh, she she was on the the she, she was the groundbreaker of female superheroes in the late 90s it out, outsold superman witchblade was introduced uh, in was they tried to piggyback to, to make witchblade successful they introduced her there they did a crossover with Lara Croft um because she was so popular they needed billy and she to, so now, so to uh, to um, kickstart their property. So Billy has also revitalized Sergeant Rock for um, 
for DC uh, Comics recently. He was just Eisner nominated for a Batman. Um, so Billy contributed. I've known him since seventh grade. He steered me towards a great editor, a guy named Jeff uh, Jeff Vaughn, J.C. Vaughn, who is a who is a vice president of publishing at Overstreet. They do the uh, uh, Overstreet co- uh, comic book guide, uh, collecting guide. He's also a great writer himself. He wrote the comic adaptations, co-authored uh, the Stargate comic book adaptations, and many many others. So Billy is contributing, and it's up on our Kickstarter, an absolutely gorgeous Kickstarter-exclusive variant cover for Stoker and Wells, and he's also promoting the hell out of it. The, uh, the main artist on it is Barry Orkin, who, who did uh, a lot of inking for Billy and she. He also uh, drew a great book um, called Demon Gun, and all anyone has to do is look at the cover and the six-page six sequence that we posted on the Kickstarter page, six page sample sequence from the book, just to see how absolutely extraordinary Barry's art is, um, his pencils and ink for um, for the book. So the uh, the three of us, we've been pals in seventh grade, hopping on you know, train going into Manhattan to go to the comic book conventions and the horror movie conventions and things. And we've worked like in little pairs over the years, but the three of us have never worked together on a project together. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been really a lot of fun to do it. Okay. So you uh, say you would go to the, to the comic cons or the, the cons there in, in New York. Yeah, um, it was called create the create. It was called, they were called creation convention. When I was a kid, it was creation. This company creation hosted it. And they were the ones who ran the the main one. This was this was probably when San Diego Comic Con was in its infancy, and it was certainly way before there was a New York Comic Con. Oh, okay. Was at the, the, the was at the hotel. There's a hotel that kept changing its name. That was literally right above Madison Square Garden, right above Penn Station. It's called the Statler. It was called the Penn. It was called a. I don't know what it's called now, but that's where it used to be. So even as kids growing up on Long Island, our parents would let us take the Long Island Railroad in. Because they knew all we were doing was we're getting out and just going on an escalator upstairs to the hotel, and then we'd go back down and come back, back home again uh, safely. Hopefully, I think we came back safe, best of my knowledge. <laughs> so let's talk about Stoker and Wells. You kind of alluded, kind of uh, what it is, or kind mm-hmm. of what it is. So oh, how how did you decide to get Stoker and Wells together? Okay, well. I was, I was, you know, there's been a change in the, the climate of, of, of film. You know, it used to be you could get interesting ideas done and out there. It's, it's much more difficult now. Everything has mm-hmm. to have some sort of branding or IP, especially if it's from a studio. Uh, the, the original ideas, the interesting outside-the-box ideas are, are, are more being done on television right now than they are in theaters. But big ideas are being done in theaters. Um, and I thought... And so everyone's sort of looking for what is some uh, IP, you know, intellectual property that's free, that I don't have to spend money to get the rights to. So I thought, you know, everyone, you know, the works of H.G. Wells, Bram Stoker, all of these, you know, authors that are in the public domain, their works. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. And then for some reason I just had in my head a teaming up of two authors. So I started to do research on everybody from, you know, seeing the timelines of Robert Louis Stevenson, everybody, all these authors, Jules Verne, everybody, Mary Shelley. And I'm very, I, I was dedicated to the idea of really basing it on who, the, could I take exactly who these people were and put them in a fantastical scenario as opposed to altering their stories to fit my needs. So as I like to build this is the absolutely true story of Bram Stoker and H.G. Wells, give or take 48 hours. And what I mean by it is, 
my, it's, it's about a 20-something H.G. Wells meets a 40-something Bram Stoker in London of 1894. And the two men embark uh, against their will on a 48-hour adventure in time uh, from which they both pull the inspiration for both man's first great work, which was the time machine for H.G. Wells and Dracula for Bram Stoker. Because before that, they were living very, very, uh, very, very um, uh, pretty much anonymous lives, not the sort of lives that we now know them for. Um, H.G. Wells was a um, sort of a ne'er-do-well, brilliant screw-up who had just gotten divorced. He was a draper. He was a substitute teacher. He was just trying to make money. He was writing essays that are getting published, some short stories, but wasn't really, was a little scared of success, wasn't really stepping into his power, wasn't really just saying, you know, dude, focus. And uh, I mean, then you couple him because, you know, every buddy film, you don't want to have a, a carbon copy. You want to have different people. So now they come from two different ages. They're very much two different men. So Bram Stoker, on the other hand, He's in his 40s for about 15 years. He's been he's Irish, but now he's in London. He's been managing uh, the Lyceum Theater for a very famous actor at the time named Henry, Henry Irving, who would eventually become Sir Henry Irving. But he's living in another man's shadow, helping another man make his dreams come true. Uh, all the while scribbling in, you know, his, his notebooks, ideas for stories, but not feeling, not ready, not yet feeling emboldened that he has a right to be. Uh, a, a novelist because he comes from came from three generations of civil servants. Um, he his first published work was something like uh, How to Be a Good Civil Servant in Ireland by Bram Stoker. It's probably if anyone got a copy of it, it would probably be the driest, dullest thing you could possibly read. Um, <laughs> so I thought, well, what if these two men met, and what if they went on this journey, and what if in that journey they stepped into their identity? And so the theme here is something that's relevant not only in 1894, but 5894, where they journey to, and, and, and obviously 2017, which is where we sit, which is where is that moment when you, where you put fear aside and you, and you put insecurity aside and you put doubt and you put excuses aside and say, it is time to step into my power. It is time to step into the person I was put on earth to be. And so I thought, what if they could have that shared adventure? So it isn't just a lark. It isn't just, oh, isn't this funny to watch H.G. Wells and Bram Stoker running around with Morlocks and Eloy and vampires. Um, but is there a greater, a cooler theme here that is actually relevant, especially to young people reading it and aspirational um, to people reading it? So that that to me is what was exciting. The, I think the, uh, the screenplay is exciting and it would work as a trilogy of movies. It would work as a limited series. TV series, but if it if all it ever lives as is this is this um, graphic novel, I'd be thrilled because I've gotten so excited about this process and the fans and the support. I mean, we've had some huge people pledge and and just sing its praises to huge social media. Eddie Izzard um, not only made an, a really signi <clears throat> significant and unexpected pledge, but he um, tweeted out and, and Facebook about it. You know, it was one million followers. But we've had other really great, great. Um, artists, um, comic book artists and um, writers who have supported it and, and are, are just trying to help get us to the finish line. And, and I appreciate you guys reaching out to me to do the same. Oh, oh yeah, you're definitely going to reach that finish line, man. The idea, <laughs> the idea you have is so good. It's one of those ideas where I think everyone can't believe that that idea is still available, you know? <laughs> right. And then with the use of the time machine, if, if 
if they're still able to use a time machine, they can go to any other era, right? And come up with come up to other art, uh, authors that you were talking about. Oh yeah, uh, I can, so. yeah. I, I won't offer any spoilers, but suffice to say uh, that you know neither Stoker nor Wells was in a position to build their own time machine. So the time machine they get into is not their own. The journey is not something that they had planned on, uh, nor are. Um, are uh, willing participants in. And once they actually journey to 5894, it is preset to return 48 hours later, but it goes missing. And the two <laughs> gentlemen know that with or without them, that time machine is going to return to 1894. So there is a ticking clock uh, for that 48 hours, which again, I had no idea until I was on this uh, interview with you guys. Wow, that has something in common with Cats Meow and something that lurks in my subconscious, which is trying to do, trying to portray people again not by running running a, a race through their life but by just spending a couple of choice days with them and i do feel like even though this is an alternate history i do feel like this is a um a very true representation of the two men's natures personalities characters um i did my research uh, i read uh, books on both gentlemen i read wells's own autobiography just to get a sense of what he thought of himself uh, and his own voice and vernacular. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun piece. Um, I think it has uh, some heart as well. And you know, I'm hoping, you know, it has other goals too. I think it'll help readers, young and old, uh, want to rediscover the the, uh, the the legacy of both men, uh, both men's written word. It uh, you know, for any kids, it's going to make authors look cool. And not that they needed my help looking cool, but it'll make them, you know, when they're when you're fighting a giant crab, you you look even more badass, um, <laughs> and maybe encourage their own, perhaps uh, squelched, you know, desire to write and make them realize, hey, maybe I have some stories percolating in my head. These guys did it, I will too. And so, you know, if it works on, if it if it if it achieves any one of the goals that that I've set for it, you know, I'll be I'll be very pleased. So uh, when you were talking about Cats Meow, you said you went into the, the history and all that. So I was, that's what I wanted to know. Um, you kind of already answered it. How how deep did you get into the history or into researching for this? Uh, even like the characters that appear in, in the comic, in the graphic novel that are not Wells and, and Stoker. Well, you know, but when I always when I research something. For, and this just happens. I don't know. It's just it's something I'm co more comfortable with. When I get to a character, when I, if, if a story takes place where the character is 27 or 28, I sort of stop my research there because I'll, I'll be talking to someone about H.G. Wells and they say, oh, yeah, you know, and then during World War, you know, just before World War, after World War One, what he blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh, yeah, really? And they go, well, don't you know? And I'm like, no, I, I just went in depth on his childhood all the way up to the point where my story starts. Mm. Um, oh. That's just something I do. I don't really go too deep into things that happened 40 years later um, because I just really want to grasp who they were in the in that moment I'm writing about them. Um, so they are real. Uh, Henry Irving is depicted, who was the uh, the sort of huge, larger than life uh, uh, British actor. He's he'll be he'll be in the book. Um, it mostly takes place in 5894, at least book one does. Book two takes place back in Victorian London. Um, but um, so to the extent that I spend time in Victorian London, um, we don't get to meet well um, um, Stoker's wife and children. We will in book two. Um, 
there is a there is a, the 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 title of this first installment is called Stoker and Wells Order of the Golden Dawn, and the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was a very real secret society um, that uh, wasn't necessarily witchcraft or Satanism, but they 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 definitely were they definitely studied you know all sorts of um, um, uh, magic and yeah, occult, everything, and it was, you know, very much a, uh, um, you know, a, a a rich person's club. So we, I, I'm not depicting anybody particular by name, although uh, somebody did pledge at a level that allows you to get drawn into the book. And what I'm suggesting to them is, if I, you know, you should, you should um, be drawn as one of the members of the Order of the Golden Dawn. There's, you'll, you'll get, you'll get a number of frames out of it. And how cool is that to be? a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's sort of my my research. Um, there's a lot of backstory that filters out. I kept, it was kept, kept becoming a bit of a embarrassment of riches when I started to see the things the two books had in common in order, because how do you construct a single story? I mean, that was really a lot of my research was for this, which was uh, rereading Dracula and the Time Machine, you know, in a PDF so that I can make all these uh, notes seeing where I could actually have an event or character be a crossover inspiration be to, that for both books. Because that's what happens. Both the, the men share a single adventure, a single story, a single villain, a single ally, all this female lead and so forth. Then they come back and, and Stoker basically says, I'm going to take this, 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 and this, and write Dracula. And, and Wells is like, oh, that's boring. I'm going to take this, 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 and this, and write a sci-fi <laughs> story. And so... But where are the crossovers and where are the commonalities? And I just was so excited when I when I saw them, uh, when I saw those uh, commonalities. So that that is very and I was very I've been very, very hard on myself and on Barry Orkin, my artist, that I don't want to deviate. I want to kind of go with the descriptions of Dracula, of Morlocks, of Eloy, of all these of beings, these things that surfaced in their books so that um so that we see, so that someone could actually read the two books, watch the movie, and think, oh, wait a minute, is that how it happened? I'm, I'm, I mean, I even confuse myself. Sometimes I think that what I wrote, I, it was so, in, you know, uh, uh, in, absorbed by it, I have to snap myself out of it and realize, Steve, this is not how it happened. The two guys <laughs> did not get in a time machine with a bayonet pointed at them and go travel in time and uh, go on the, a madman's experiment. I, I don't want to reveal too many spoilers, but there's a little... Uh, a little taste of what happens. Um, I, I had a question about your writing, actually. Um, yeah. What? How was the transition for you from going from like screenplay to more of like the comic book panel script format? Um, it was. It's, it's interesting because it will. It, it involves. I already kind of uh, uh, um, feel that I, I I'm really good with economy uh, in my screenplays, but you have to be even better with economy in a graphic novel, particularly if you're going to take something that's feature length and turn it into a 64 page book. Because yeah. even a 64 page book isn't 64 pages of story. At that point, you still have a you know, title page, there'll be, a kick, there'll be a, you know, acknowledgements and a thank you page, it'll Kickstarter, pin up page. Um, so uh, it's how do you take that and bring it down? And I have some good mentors, but it's fun. I like I like the challenges. I like someone telling me uh, you know, it's always great to look at white paper and say, just be free, do whatever you want. 
but it's another thing someone give you a box, say, these are your ingredients, now go make something really, really tasty to eat, and you can't use anything but what's in this box. So when someone tells me, take that screenplay, turn it into this length, to me, that fires all my cylinders, and I get excited about it, and <laughs> it makes me know what to cut, what to consolidate, what to bring together, what scene will look good in these panels, what, what we can just fold the information into another scene, um, but I'm learning. So, uh, you know, whenever you, you the, the best thing you can do in your career and in life is to know what you know and know what you don't know. And when you know, when you, to acknowledge the things you don't know and, and surround yourself with people who are better than you and, uh, and, and know more about the subject. And so I'm learning a lot from my team um, because they are immersed in the world of comics and, uh, and they have been really, uh, really uh, great uh, guiding me, uh, giving me the tools. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to say, like, when I went from the screenplay of The Cat's Meow to the stage play, I had learned, uh, even though I'd written plays, I'd never had a play uh, published, but I'd written stage plays. But when I look back at my screenplay, I realized, whoa, all those little private glances, those little stolen glances and asides, they don't really, those close-ups, the story moments that are communicated silently through the visual medium of film does not work on stage. You cannot have a close-up on stage unless suddenly all the lights go out and you do a spotlight and then you have a TV monitor that shows that face really big. Um, so I decided, so I, I had to communicate, I had to rethink some moments in the adaptation because I, I did a, a, a I, it wasn't a stage play first, even though the credit on the screen for the Cat's Meow says screenplay by Stephen Perrows from his stage play. It's actually erroneous, but that's the way the Writers Guild insisted it be. Um, so I had actually rethink it because for the stage you have to think of uh, of who's in the eighth row back you know you can't make it all about close-ups so i had to put in lines more explicit lines of dialogue um so that people would understand what was um going on and uh, and i also had a ping pong match in the in the script the the screenplay and it's really hard to do on stage <laughs> uh every night so i had to rethink what happened in that scene and rejigger it for the stage. So here again, it's a very, I'm, I'm probably if any scenes are, are heavily reliant on talking heads, um, I will probably either open them up into, I, I'll probably consolidate that information, um, streamline it a little more, fold it into more visually dynamic sequences. It's it already hopefully is that way, but again, I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's more about just, you know, paring it down and making it pop. But, but but maintaining what I hope is the wit and intelligence of the piece. I really like the look. You already talked about the the artwork and who and and. Mm -hmm. But I really like the way the warlocks look. Um, yeah. They <laughs> really really look from from what I remember. Because I remember seeing the the old um, uh, the time machine and of course the the graphics back then and their makeup back then was not as great. But I think this this looks really really great. And what I like is that you actually provided us a kind of finished page, and then it kind of kind of just goes down from there. Um, we got the pencils page, the ink page, or the ink page, then the pencil page, right? Um, yeah, we yeah. What we did was we, we we had a discussion about this, and we said let's put a six-page sequence together, uh, a sample six-page sequence that kind of uh, which I picked because it happened somewhere in the middle of the book. But it sort of gives you a little bit of the A to Z of what you might expect, whether it's thrills, adventure, humor, a little bit of their history, um, um, 
a little bit of everything that you might find in the book all in one six-page uh, sequence. And then we thought, well, uh, it was a discussion. I said, I think it was my editor, J.C. Vaughn, suggested it. He said, what if we do – I love when I see Kickstarter stuff in stages, and I think audiences like it. So of the six pages, three are fully complete, inked, penciled, inked, and colored – but two of those six are just inked, and then one of them is just at the pencil stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, the drawings and the coloring of, of the Morlocks are right out of the time machine, the blonde hair, the phys- the size, the appearance, um, all of that, in the co- down to the color of the eyes, is something that comes right from the pages of, um, of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. So it was very fun. Um, Working with Barry, um, who just does such a stunning job on the pencil and ink, and uh, and he went through about, I think he showed me about six different studies for the Morlocks before we chose that one. But it sort of was everybody's favorite, and I think it was his favorite as well. The other the, the others were extraordinary, um, but this one really nailed the Morlocks and made them uh, even more frightening um, uh, t- to look at. Uh, so yeah, it was it was it was it was fun to put together the page. And then at the end of the page, we have some uh, Barry's pencils of some uh, some uh, of of our of our uh, basically the 5894 ver- year 5894 version of the man who will become Count Dracula. So we have that at the at the very end of the the uh, the Kickstarter page, the the pencil there. That again, that comes from uh, you know I showed Barry, I copied and pasted Stoker's own description of Dracula from the pages of the book, which is so rarely the depiction of Dracula, mm-hmm. and um, and so he incorporated that into a sort of uh, wardrobe that has one foot in the past and one foot in the future, um, and then at the castle, which is as crowned by a dragon, thus the castle is known. Uh, as Castle Dracul, which is uh, dragon in Romanian, and uh, and from there one can begin to theorize how he became came to be known as Dracula. Um, so uh, so yeah, it was just a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun watching Barry do the work and what he sent me. And we just posted on our uh, on Facebook uh, Barry's rendering of the time machine itself, the physical time machine. So I'll post that to the Kickstarter page probably as soon as I I'm done with this. Uh, immensely enjoyable interview <laughs> your uh, colorist on this is like really good i actually know chris summers from his work on the evil dead comic oh yeah he's great yeah. isn't he he did yeah. terrific thank you for for pointing that out yeah chris did all the coloring on the pages um barry did the coloring on the two covers both his and uh billy tucci's uh variant cover uh which is in the style of uh, muka's um uh, art, uh, particularly from his 1890s Moet and Chandon um, posters uh, they did for the Champagne. So Billy kind of on his own had this idea, well, why don't I do it? this? Because the book takes place 1894. I'll do it in the style of Mooka and uh, and see if Steve likes it. So he did a lot of work with his fingers crossed that I wouldn't go, what the hell are you doing, Billy? Uh, <laughs> it wound up being really, really gorgeous. But yeah, Chris Summers, I mean, I, I, I thank J.C. Vaughn for bringing Chris Summers to me. These are people I would not have uh, had known about or had access to and Chris just hit it out of the park with his coloring. Um, uh, Marshall Dillon is just like sets the standard for, for just classic lettering uh, from, you know, the, the, the great era of uh, 
the golden and silver ages of, of, of comics. You know, I didn't want to do some something experimental. I really wanted these to look this to look like the quality of the, the comic books that I saw spied grew up on. Again, I wasn't as immense immersed in it when we would we and my buddies would go into the creation conventions. We'd all have different agendas. I was more the, the one who loved the movie stuff that they were doing and, and film co movie collectibles. And then I would kind of, you know, read, read my friends, you know, what their pirate's booty was of, of, of comics they had procured. You know, I'd read it on the Long Island Railroad heading back, but I didn't really have much of a comic collection myself. Um, but I really wanted that. And so I think people like Marshall Dillon just bring that really, really wonderful sense, that lettering that we just that just looks so right. Uh, I think he did a great job with that as well. Looking at the uh, what your different pledge pledge levels are at, uh -huh. you have some really unique pledge levels. Because mm -hmm. um, I do see, you know, you you, have, you start off with like the normal ones that you would normally see, print copy, the digital copy, mm -hmm. um, the different covers. But then I see here, like uh, you you get start getting things like portfolio reviews, publishing evaluation, mm -hmm. which is something that I I haven't seen in in other Kickstarters that at least uh, from that what I've seen. Well, yeah, I mean, you have people from all over. I mean, look, I I, I I'll speak for the three uh, three artists who are involved in this. The me and Billy, Billy Tucci and Barry Orkin, we come from working class mm -hmm. suburbia. We didn't have any nepotism. Nobody we knew in the business. Um, we didn't have, we certainly, none of our, our families were incredibly supportive, but they weren't deep pockets who could fund our lives. So, you know, we relied heavily on the mentors who came into our life, um, who we pursued. And so a lot of Kickstarter people, you know, they aren't from, you know, New York or L.A. or Chicago. They're from the middle of the country. They don't know anybody and they're working on stuff. So we thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, that Billy, T Billy Tucci reviewed your portfolio, your art portfolio or Barry Orkin did. Or if Jeff, who's in comic book publishing, um, you know, gave you an evaluation of your property. Um, and again, all this is uh, and at those pledge levels, you're also getting all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. You're getting the book uh, mailed to your door, two versions, both the original cover and Billy's uh, Kickstarter exclusive cover. You know, you're getting many, uh, many prints of both covers. You're getting a digital download. You're getting your a thank you in the book. Uh, and, and, and those books will be uh, autographed at that level. And so and on top of that, you're getting something that all of us charge much more for when we do consultations. So and we all do consultations for for this price and higher and people don't get all that all that all those bells and whistles. So, yeah, and I mean, my thing for script evaluation, if I was doing this, I would if I was anybody out there who was actually a screenwriter. I mean, I my first gig and job in L.A. was was being the top script reader at uh, William Morris, which is now WME, William Morris. Yeah. Dev. And so. I mean, that, that at a pledge level for 300, you'll get all the all the toys we're sending you, the book, the this, the that. Plus, I will read your screenplay and give you an evaluation. I'm sorry. That's just a really good deal. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm saying it because I've earned the right to say it. I worked for seven years as a, as a top script reader. I'm a produced screenwriter, I'm a, 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 a produced TV writer, a produced playwright. So if you don't know somebody in the business, um, I've taught screenwriting and TV writing. So. To have, you know, to be able to have the opportunity for me to read and evaluate your pilot or your screenplay up to 120 pages uh, and then get all those other toys, that, which will hopefully go up in value. That's my plan um, is uh, is a is a pretty good deal in my, you know, in my opinion.
Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we got other, like you said, we have Bar- Barry will uh, draw uh, at 400. Again, you get all the toys. Plus, um, Barry will draw you in our in our pinup page as either your likeness as either a Morlock and Eloy or as a Victorian citizen from 1894. Plus, he'll provide a, you know the a high res JPEG that you can use for printing on your end. And of course, he would coordinate um, signing it if you wanted his original signature on it. Um, you know, then there's uh, and then on top of that, at a thousand, and someone did claim this award at a thousand. All that you get everything. And you actually get drawn into the story. So that's that's uh, you get to be drawn not so much as a Morlock because we don't want to kind of compromise the book and suddenly have a human face on on a Morlock. But but we'll have you as an Eloy or as a member because they're more human looking as a member of the uh, exclusive mysterious order of the Golden Dawn. And Barry will draw that and you'll be in probably more than more than one frame. And we'll consult with you on 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 your choice as to who to be and how to be depicted. We won't embarrass. <laughs> if you're going to put that kind of money into our <laughs> book, we're going to make sure you're involved in, in the choice of how to put you, uh, put you in there. I'm going to encourage everybody who is listening to go to the Kickstarter and look through these, these panels that we were talking about earlier. I, and I forgot to bring it up. There's this one panel. I think it's the, um, the pencil and ink only. And it's uh, when they're going through the tunnel with uh, Bram mm-hmm. and, and Wells, and Wells is just talking and talking and talking. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he curses, or or I guess the the, the Victorian version of a curse. Yeah. yeah. And he gets mad at her. Yeah. Let's let's just stop talking, Bram. He's like me. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I think you yeah. you said they they have the two different personalities, and you can you can see that come come through in in that panel. Yeah. I mean, Wells is just you know Stoker for the reasons one will see when they read the book is just just really is blaming Wells for the mess they've gotten into. And <laughs> Wells just doesn't care. He's just fascinated by this world. He's running through it all. And Stoker's just getting the crap beat out of him. I mean, you know, he's the bigger guy. I mean, Stoker was a, an athlete in college. By the time the story starts, he's a little gone to seed, a little pot-bellied, you know, working his office job. But, you know, he's the bigger guy, and he's just taking this more seriously, getting more – he's getting more frustrated with this young millennial – Named uh, Brand, you know, <laughs> well, and all of his mustache attitude, and uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's it's a fun pairing. It it it, it paves the way for very organic uh, sparring between them and humor, because they each think the other one isn't living up to their level, and they and they each say, "Me, you're the one who's this. No, you're the one who's that." <laughs> and by the end, they both kind of help each other and get each other to the other side of, uh, and and so that by the end, because both men will. Uh, will go on, and they actually will go on to two more books, ideally, uh, for us. Um, the second one will be, this is, uh, um, the first is Stoker and Wells' Order of the Golden Dawn. The second will be called Stoker and Wells' The Ashes of Revenge. And the third will be Stoker and Wells' The Plans Against Us. And that comes from a quote from uh, War of the Worlds, which... I was going to say, that's a great title. Where did you get that from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... If you do those three, and, and I'm pretty sure you're going to be more than funded for all three, because this seems really great. Like like I said before, when we first saw it, we we're like, this looks legitimate. We want to we want to look at it. Yeah, and we look so, at dozens of Kickstarters every time we're going to get somebody and yours just like pop right at us. Um, so so glad. I mean, that was our our hope, our drive every time. And Barry was so patient with me. Uh, Every time I, 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 you know, he'd always, you know, do the thumbnails and then the pencils and, and sometimes he and I were right in sync. Other times, can you do this? Can you do that? And I, 
And he, I just really think he nailed it uh, in terms of the essential images. And, uh, um, and, and again, everybody else, you mentioned Chris Summers uh, and, and Marshall with his lettering. I just, I just think really that the images pop. I'm so proud of their work. You know, that's what I, like you were saying about the actors and the cats meow. The only reason I can watch the movie over and over again, not to sit there and go, Oh my words, aren't they so lovely? It's because <laughs> I just love watching these actors. They're all so good. And, uh, and so that's, what makes you want to, and so I can keep looking at these pages, not because, and I'm not even looking at my words. I'm just, like, I just love what my words brought out in somebody else, and now they got to do their thing. So it's, it's really fun, um, this whole experience of the, uh, in fact, I was so excited about it, I had to be more, I had to pull back, dial back and realize, oh, I'm supposed to be critical. I can't just be so thrilled that someone's drawn, before <laughs> Barry sends me the first page, like, wow, this is so great. And then JC is our editor, He's like, well, I have this. Let's talk about this. I was like, oh, you're right. You're right. Shoot. I'm sorry. What was I thinking? <laughs> um, so it's it's been really good. And like I said, Barry's done a terrific job. I, and I, and I, 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 every time I tag his name on Facebook, I'm so thrilled to be sharing. And, and, and I get someone from the industry, the film and TV industry, who's saying, my, it's great. Who's this artist? Who's this artist? I'm so thrilled to be sharing him um, with more of the world. I mean, he's, he's, he's already known, but now getting even more and more deservedly so known for this tremendous work. I mean, that pencil, the one that people, even though it's, it's the one that's least finished, there's that um, third drawing, which is the uh, pencil drawing. Uh, and it has that Morlock in the foreground crawling towards us, um, who's leading them, but has a bit of a sinister look or, or what we don't know it's on his mind. And I just think it's such a, a gorgeous piece. In fact, when I, offered someone to be able to take one of our 11 by 17s we made for our launch party we had at the Samuel French bookshop here in LA. I said, you know what? Yeah, I was thanking them for helping out. Uh, it was actually a podcast for Nerdist Network. And I said, you can have one of these. And he didn't take one of the color ones. He didn't take one of the inked ones. He said, can I have that one? I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he took the penciled one. So it was yeah, original, but it was, it was all a, pr a print on foam board. So, uh, yeah, it was very cool. As as cool as these things look when they're colored and and inked in, the penciled one looks really nice. Yeah, I know. There's yeah, a lot of detail good. to it. Yeah, I you know we talked about that. We you know it's cheaper to do a, a, a black and white book. A lot of people do, but part of me is I really want to make a statement and, and announce to you know if anybody whether it's 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 you know dark horse uh, or or dc or marvel that anybody I, I want someone to look at this from the 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 big needs of a big selling book mm -hmm. and think that this yep. book can be it and so sometimes i'll pick up a black and white book and that's just me and and my um you know i love i love black and white movies i'm, I'm my my first love is cinema from the 30s 40s 50s so but for some reason, I expect comic books to be in color. That's my where my mind goes. And I, while I would love to do a black and white book at some point, and this looks stunning in black and white, I just felt like I wanted this to be sort of like you said, like you said, the old movie, The Time Machine. You know, whenever I is in, is in beautiful color. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, more of the worlds. That I, when I think of H.G. Wells, I think of color. Um, uh, you know, Dr Drac Dracula, uh, uh, not so much, but when I think of Hammer films and the Christopher Lee Dracula oh, yeah. movies, which this almost has a little bit more in common with than it does um, the Lugosi Universal uh, era. Um, so then when I couple Hammer films plus 1950s H.G. Wells adaptations, even though all of Barry's designs and my descriptions are unique 
to our version. There's nothing we, we didn't borrow from any movies to do this. That, that would actually involve rights acquisition. So, no, everything here comes from the book or Barry's and my imagination. But, again, that sense of, of color just felt like what I wanted for this book. But, again, I, I love that we have these images in pure, in pure black and white and pencil to show people because uh, it, it does look really cool. <laughs> There's no question about it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so what is your um, like final idea for this? I mentioned I heard you mention like Dark Horse is your plan to get this together and then pitch it for Dark Horse. To- well, no, it's it's not so much that we don't have that. We're, we haven't thought that long game yet. But I just wanted to make sure the book that no, I didn't want anybody, any one of the big boys in the publishing world because we can get this out independently. We oh, can yeah. do- so but if, if somewhere in the journey. Uh, you know, one of the big boys sees it at San Diego next year or, or, or someone hands it to them. I don't want them to flip through it and say, yeah, this is a really good looking indie book. I want them uh, to look at it and think I could see our, our logo in the top left corner on the cover. Uh, it looks like the kind of book that pops. Uh, Barry's first coloring for the cover was beautiful. It was much more monochromatic. And it was dark and it was, you know, it was really cool. And then I, you know, we, I just said, you know, I was talking with other, other comic book people and other people in sales. And, and that's when we went, you know what, let's make it pop. Let's go with a yellow background. Let's really make that silhouette of the three, the, the, our, our heroes pop out so that it has shelf appeal. So that you look at it and it just grabs you at the, the muted tones and the black and white inside. It just, it screams this is a beautiful art, like like movies. It's like a beautiful art film, and it isn't necessarily what makes. Uh, you know, I think this really does. It's the ability to do something artistic, sophisticated, intelligent, but within a pop culture mass market um, uh, package. And so, you know, that was. So I don't have a specific plan with regards to them, other than I want it to look like something that they might want to get involved with, maybe. Uh, pick up where we leave off and and have and, and instead of doing book two and three independently maybe book two and three through a, a publisher rather than having rather than going back to kickstarter and, and starting all over again each time um so but we'll see you know right now we're getting the first book out and uh the old if you build it they will come so like i said before i encourage everybody to head out to the kickstarter and if you're able to pledge because this is something you're going to want and if you're unable to pledge for any reason share it because this thing is something that we really need to to um, make sure it gets funded it is something that i can see enjoying for a really long time well thank you you know all you have to do i don't know how you guys will post this link but if you if you post the kickstarter link alongside it great if not all your all your listeners have to do is go to kickstarter and type the word stoker s-t-o-k-e-r and it, it will we're the only Thing with the word Stoker in it that'll come up. Stoker and Wells will also obviously then will definitely come up. Um, if you type in HG Wells, a million things will come up. So don't do that <laughs> unless you want to just look at a million things that have HG Wells in it. Um, so yeah, if you put the word single word Stoker or Stoker and the word and and then W E L L S, it'll pop up for sure. Um, we have only nine days left as of this taping. So um, Tuesday, November twenty first. It's all or nothing, folks. That's Kickstarter, which is, you know, we're at $13,000 in pledges now, which is fantastic. We got to get to 20560 in order to collect. Otherwise, bye-bye. Those pledges 
don't come. So uh, we got a little bit more to go. We're in a good place as we rally to the finish line of a 30-day uh, campaign. But we, we do need more. And believe me, every $5 helps. Every $10 helps. For, 10, you, for 5 you get a, your name in the book. For 10 you get your name in a book plus a digital download. For 25 you get a physical copy of the 64 pages mailed to your door at no extra charge if you're in the U.S., plus the digital download, plus your name in the book. I mean, essentially you're pre-ordering. This is not a donation. This is crowdfunding, which means you are paying to have it. And so it's like going to Amazon and something's, you know, you're, you're doing a pre-order. Um, and as a result, you are the ones giving birth to it. So if you like what you see, consider, uh, consider making a pledge, consider sharing it. Um, it helps and, uh, and we would really, really uh, appreciate it. All right. So is there anything else you want to add before we um, we finish this uh, episode up? No, I, I can't get more aggressive in my sales pitch than what <laughs> I just did before I start annoying your listeners. So uh, I, I just really am grateful to you guys. Your questions are terrific. I appreciate the platform. And as soon as I get uh, that link from you guys, I'm going to continue to sing the praises of uh, Nerds from the Crypt. Believe me. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. We'll go ahead and leave it there. I, I will go ahead and, and in the show notes, make sure to put the link to the Kickstarter. And I'll, if you allow me, I'll, I'll, I'll put the cover page on, on our webpage our, so that we, people can see what, what exactly we're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds terrific. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for, for being our guest. It was a pleasure and uh, very informative on this project. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. I uh, appreciate it. I love uh, have have me back anytime. Awesome. Thank you guys for for listening to us, and we'll see you guys next time here in the Nerds from the Crypt podcast. It's your turn to be afraid. Are you a fan of things that go bump in the night? Chills up your spine, paralyzed by fright. Thrilled by horror at the center of a chat. Then welcome to the Nerds from the Crypt podcast.